While You Were Folding, Episode 28, Q&A with Dr. Philip Boucher. Hi, I'm Catherine Boucher, and you're listening to While You Were Folding. This show is my weekly excuse to talk about my favorite things, marriage, parenting, faith, friendship, culture, what I'm reading and watching, and whatever else strikes my fancy. I've been a wife for 10 years and a mother for eight. I won't pretend to be an expert. I will introduce you to some amazing guests, ask a whole bunch of questions, invite you into the conversation, and encourage you to share what you heard while you were folding. Let's go ahead and start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of this week. Thank you for the gift of this pregnancy. Please continue to be with me, to bring health to myself and our new life that's growing within me. And please watch over my listeners. Please build us up in our vocations as wives and mothers. And today, please bring wisdom to Philip as he answers questions about parenting and pediatrics and help him to be a source of reassurance and comfort to anyone who might be listening. We pray these things through your name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. So, listeners, I'll just do a really quick catch-up. Like I said on the last episode, in case you missed it, go ahead and go back to episode 27. I'm back from my summer hiatus. Um with intentions of taking a break to do some mad rush paperwork for our adoption. And we found out that we were pregnant and I have been um, continuing to grow this little life, but with a whole lot of nausea and the nausea came back big time last week. So I was not able to record the podcast. I am hoping to resume a weekly release. Um, So it's my goal to get another episode out for you next week. But I apologize that I didn't have one last time. And I was so sick that I didn't even bother to try putting an announcement up. So I'm not the best podcaster out there, but I've never pretended to, to be super professional. It's just been a fun hobby, but I appreciate you being patient with me. Um, But let's see, let's just bring you up to speed with what's new around here. So I was super sick the last two weeks since I last recorded a podcast episode, but since then, I had a couple of really fun opportunities to go on some fun outings with Philip. So the first one, Philip and I got to go, well, first of all, let me have Philip jump on here and say hi. Hello. He's sitting down here with me. It's my hope to just go through and do a one and done recording tonight. So um, you jump in here anytime you want during the intro. So we got to go to our first football game. We hadn't been to a Husker, for those of you who are not from Nebraska, the Huskers are the Nebraska football team. Um, We went to our first football game for the first time since. When was the last time we went? It's been a few years, I think. I don't remember the last game that we went to, but it was definitely before we had Dorothy. Yeah, so she's going to turn three here. Yeah. Uh, this spring. So it's been a while. So that was a lot of fun. And it was extra special because 
These tickets, I actually bid on them during a silent auction for our area high school's fundraiser last spring. While I was in the bathroom. <laughs> I, I went to the bathroom and I come back and Catherine says that I have to go pay up for the live auction. Well, you had already gone to close out our whole tab for the evening and then yeah. we're going into the restroom, right? Yep. I, I paid our bill and then I went to the restroom <laughs> and then you come back and, and I came back and you said, you need to go pay. I said, I already did. And she said, no, we got something else in the live auction. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we got four tickets to go to the Husker football game. We were in the suites. Skybox. Sorry, I don't even know my lingo, the skybox. Um, so that was pretty fun to get to go and do that. And the Huskers were in the middle of, I won't even call it a season of rebuilding. We're, we have a couple of years yeah. of rebuilding to do, but we have a lot of faith in our new head coach. Everyone does, it seems. Um, former college Nebraska football player, Scott Frost. Our son, Walt, is your biggest fan. Oh my gosh, Walt is obsessed. I don't even know why, because we've never really, like, we're not much of a sports watching or playing family, and so it's rare that we have sports on. The only sports we ever watch is Husker football, and usually, because we have cut the cable, cut the cord from cable, we can't even get a good signal to watch the game, but Walt has become obsessed this year with Husker football and Husker sports, and he has, like, a shrine in his room to Scott Frost and draws all these Husker pictures and makes all these Lego stadiums and... They have hot dog stands and bathrooms and skyboxes. And... Yeah, today he added a refrigerator to his skybox. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All the essentials. Um, oh, those of you who are sports fans, though, quick tip that I did not know about until this fall. As Philip said, we cut cable, what, nine years ago? Yeah, something like that. Before Jane was born, I think. Um, so it's been a while since we've had cable at our house. So like Philip said, we haven't been able to really watch a lot of the Husker games unless they were on a major network that broadcast it on their website and we could stream it that way. But my friends uh, told me about Hulu Live and yeah, how... It's amazing. I don't know how we missed it. So give a quick spiel. Tell them it's about like, Hulu Live. It's like 40 something dollars a month and um, you get all the live like local channels, all the big national channels. You can record. It sounds like we're like a commercial for Hulu Live. Yeah, we're not getting paid. But we'd be happy to accept that if we were Hulu. Um, <laughs> but uh, so we were able to watch all the games on the Big Ten Network or whatever channel, if they're on ESPN or whatever. And then we've also used it to watch old seasons of Top Chef lately. That's been our like binge show. So we watched Hung in season three when... And now, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> and now we're watching season four where... Who wins season four? Well, don't tell them. Um, okay. I won't say. I don't even remember. Well, they're in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Chicago. So, okay. Yeah. That, we, we don't want to spoil it for you. But we've been able to do all that because of our Hulu Live subscription, which is much cheaper than cable. Yeah. So we've enjoyed that. So we got to enjoy a fun Husker football game. And then we also got tickets through Phillip's office to go and see a volleyball game, mm -hmm. a Husker volleyball game. And I had not been to a Husker volleyball game since I was in junior college. high. I haven't been to one since college. And I don't know if you follow college volleyball, but the Nebraska program has had a very long-standing tradition of being one of the top teams in the country. And 
They played awesome that night, and it was so much fun. So it was great to get to. I felt like we were the ultimate Husker sports yeah, this, fans. This was a big Husker week. I had to wash my polo um, with like two days turnaround time so that I could wear it because I don't have a ton of Husker clothes. Because he has one Husker shirt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we really got to up our game. But I could definitely become a Husker volleyball super fan. I love how fast-paced those games are and how each sport has its own uh, fan subculture. Oh, so yeah. the fans were doing these different chants and we had no idea. Like they were like putting their hands up and then doing this like woof, woof, woof. No, it wasn't woof. Oh. <laughs> Clearly we don't know. <laughs> what was it then? No, it was like woof, woof, woof. Oh, okay. It wasn't woof. Okay. But anyway, <laughs> anytime they had a big block, that's what they would do. Oh, so, okay. so it was super fun to get to be Husker super fans. For a couple weeks, but I had to get, um, I didn't know about the purse rules, how you have to have the clear bag containers. You can either have a really small clutch, which is what I brought with me to the Husker football game, but the Husker colors are red and white, and it was a blue clutch that I brought. the problem. Philip is tuning out at this point, but um, I happened to be at a store and walked by and saw that they had these clear bags for the Huskers on sale. So I got myself one of those now that I'm a super Husker fan. So I have to get tickets for another event coming up. (laughs) Hopefully the dimensions still work in three years and then go back to another Husker event. Okay, whatever. So if anyone wants someone to tag along or you're needing to get rid of your tickets at any point in time for a Husker sporting event, she's got a purse for it. Say the word. I've got the purse. I've got the equipment. I might need to find another top. To cover my burgeoning belly, but um, <laughs> but we're otherwise in good shape. So we are Husker super fans. Um, and then also Philip and I this last weekend we got to go out on our first date, not a sporting event, but a date. But it had to be a day date because I've been so sick in the evenings with pregnancy nausea. So do you want to tell the listeners about where we went and what we did? Yeah. It, and I would count the other two sporting events as dates, too, since we didn't have the kids and it was just us. Um, but this was our first non-sporting event date, and we went out to lunch because Catherine had a mom's group meeting in the morning. And then we went to do some shopping for some projects that we're doing on our main level. Fireplace, mantle, uh, blinds, and flooring again well um, we ha- i haven't told the listeners about the flooring it's not worth discussing <laughs> but we're getting different flooring again but our flooring company is working with us to make sure that we are happy with the final product that will get installed so we we should name the baby after the flooring because that's we went to kansas city that's where we when we got pregnant because we <laughs> went to kansas city because we had to leave the home so they could install the flooring yeah. and so maybe They'd give us a discount if we name the new baby after them yeah, and tell the story. Maybe. Um, maybe we could name give the babies, if it's a boy, the middle name Royal after the Kansas City Royals. Oh, okay. In that homage to Kansas City. Mm-hmm. I think that would be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Anyway, enough about the baby's origins. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so we had, uh, we went a lot of different places yeah, making a lot we were of out different... About decisions um so maybe someday if we ever 
did decide to build a home, maybe we could do it after all. After all the, I felt like we were pretty pretty quick. We went to bed at like eight o'clock that night after all the browsing and everything. Oh, I passed out at like yeah. seven forty-five. Yeah. So it, I mean, it was a lot of work to miss nap time and to do all those decision-making things. <laughs> nap time is kind of a big deal. It is a big deal at our house. So, so that's pretty much it. Those are the big highlight highlight reel for us. Also, I guess the kids did have parent-teacher conferences. So after we got back from our day date, we took the kids out. For dinner, and we never take the kids out for a meal unless we're meeting up with your family for yeah. brunch or something like that. Dorothy likes to spill drinks a lot. We had at one point the restaurant that we went to, they had brought waters out for everyone, and then everyone ordered like a chocolate milk. So we had like 12 cups on the table, and I just had to take a bunch and put them on the floor because Dorothy's <laughs> MO is any cup that she can find, she dumps it out for no good reason. And uh, there was just too much temptation on our tiny table. Yeah, she was compelled to spill everything. But overall, it was, I think, a fairly relaxing outing yeah, for it was. everyone. We made it home in time to watch the Huskers. So Yes, until I fell asleep. Right. And then we went to bed. All right, so onward to the main topic today. Those of you who have been listening to the podcast for any length of time, you know that Philip is my husband, <laughs> and uh, we've been married for 10 years. We've got four kids on earth and one baby in heaven. Jane is eight years old, Walt is seven, Harry is five, and Dorothy is two, and we're expecting this baby, number five, to arrive sometime mid-March, and Philip is in private p- practice um, as a pediatrician here in Lincoln. And we moved here 2014, so you've been in private practice for almost five years now. Yep. So I asked all of you listeners to just send in whatever questions you have related to pediatrics. And I have them all typed up here, but Philip and I might have some conversation commentary in between. So I'll just throw out some of these questions and see where the conversation goes. Sound good? Perfect. Okay, so... First question we have here is from listener Melissa, and she sent this great email, and I want to read it for you. She says, I have a question that has been on our hearts for a couple of years. With two girls approaching their teenage years, one turning 13 in September, our pediatrician has been strongly recommending the HPV vaccine for a couple of years. We have not done it yet. My husband is a physician, but not a pediatrician and feels like there is much more advertising and pressure surrounding this vaccine than any other, and is very skeptical about it. Our daughters do not have any interest in boys or sex right now, and they understand Catholic teaching and waiting for marriage. When I asked my devout Catholic OBGYN, she said that we can wait till our daughter is in her late teens, early 20s, and she can choose to get vaccinated at that point. She said her concerns would be, What if our daughters are sexually assaulted when they are in college? Or what if they marry someone who happened to have HPV as a result of bad choices he had made? Then I remembered that your husband is a pediatrician and wondered if he could share his opinion with me. For now, my husband and I think there is no harm in waiting for the vaccine to mature and any unknown side effects to become known while our daughters are still young, tweens, and teens. 
we saw something on the internet about how teenage girls experiencing menopause after the vaccine, which was very frightening. So from there, she wraps it up. So she has a lot of really great questions there. And I know within my circle of friends and Catholic circles, this is a pretty hot topic. Mm -hmm. So why don't we back up? And first of all, you can explain to those of us who don't come from the science background, what is HPV? HPV is a um, What's virus. What's it stand for? Human papillomavirus. It's a virus that is very common, and it causes um, warts to grow for the most part. It can also cause um, cervical cancer. And so the reason that women get pap smears is for HPV. The virus that um, causes cervical cancer is HPV. And so there's several high-risk strains that are responsible for the vast, vast majority of cervical cancer. So the whole reason that pap smears exist is to check for cervical cancer caused by HPV. Um, in regards to her questions about the HPV vaccine, this is a very common thing that we discuss um, starting at probably ages 9, 10, 11, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. I talked to my parents, my patients about it earlier, um, because if you look at the literature, it actually shows that earlier administration has a higher um, immunogenicity, meaning that it's more effective at creating antibodies that protect against HPV infection. HPV, interestingly, is a skin disease. It doesn't get into the bloodstream. So you have to have really high antibody levels at the skin level in order for you to be protected from it. So earlier administration of the vaccine is actually more protective against HPV vaccine, so or against HPV disease. So I tell parents that early administration is better and if you look at the studies, the, the, this mom brings up really good points about my kids aren't interested in um, boys or in sex at this age, so I don't think that they need it. And that's totally true. I wouldn't expect a 9, 10, 11-year-old to be interested in those things yet. But we're really not waiting until they are to, to give the vaccine because it works better the younger it's given. You can certainly wait and give it older, um, but it doesn't work quite as well in terms of creating the antibody, creating the response that you're looking for from the body to protect against HPV. I usually talk to parents about starting it at age 9 or 10 because then everybody, it seems, um, historically gets a bunch of vaccines when they go into 7th grade. And so instead of starting the series then, you're finishing the series then so that if there's a couple of years that lapse between when you get, go come in for your seventh grade physical and then you come back for another physical or a sick visit, you're already done with the vaccine rather than having to get it again. It's a two-shot series. So if you started at age 10 or 11, then you can finish it when you're 12. If you wait until you're 15, because like I said, it's not as effective at a, a, at a later age, you have to get three doses. So starting early also saves you a poke. It saves you the insurance cost of getting the vaccine for three doses instead of two. So your recommended time spacing-wise between getting the series of vaccinations is how, how long? You get one dose, and then you can get the second dose as soon as six months later. So typically, I just have parents do it. You know, most teens come in for a summer checkup because they need a physical for sports. They get their first dose when they're 10 or 11. 
they come back for a seventh grade physical or the next physical the next summer and they get their second dose. It saves them from having to come into the office just to get a vaccine. They can get it all done at those physicals. Mm-hmm. Um, another point that listener Melissa didn't bring up, and I don't think that this would be something on her radar for her daughters, but um, I think there's a lot of curiosity about why males should get the Gardasil vaccine. Um, So I'd love for you to speak to that and also um, oral sex and the attitudes that teens and young adults have toward oral sex and the risk of HPV being introduced through oral sex. So as far as the, what was your first question? With boys getting Oh yeah, boys, boys. So the reason that we recommend it for boys, boys and girls should both get HPV vaccine. Um, The reason for that is a couple things. First, um, we know HPV is obviously a sexually transmitted disease and boys give HPV to girls through sexual intercourse. And so um, vaccinating boys against it helps decrease the likelihood that they'll have HPV and pass it to a female partner. Additionally, like I said, about 90 plus percent of cervical cancer is caused by HPV and probably 60 to 80 percent of head and neck cancer is caused by HPV and head and neck cancer affects both boys and girls. Obviously boys don't have cervixes, they don't get cervical cancer, but they do get head and neck cancer. So we're talking cancer of the jaw and of the tongue and of the mouth and the throat. Um, Those are caused by HPV um, virus as well. So protecting against um, head and neck cancers is another reason to vaccinate with HPV. Um, Like you said too, oral sex is definitely a way that HPV can be transmitted. And so um, teens that maybe are not ready for sexual intercourse, but um, are engaging in oral sex are also at risk for HPV disease. Mm -hmm. There seems to be an attitude that oral sex is not sex. And so therefore, if my teen is not having intercourse, genital intercourse, then they are not at risk for cervical cancer. But that is not what we're talking about is preventing against HPV, right? which is still a possibility with oral sex. I really don't even talk about the sexual part of it with parents very much because most are kind of already familiar with the fact that it's sexually transmitted. And really, I just look at it as a way to protect against cancer. HPV causes cervical cancer. It's a cancer that strikes down mom-aged women, so in their 30s to 50s, child-bearing, child-rearing age moms get cervical cancer for the most part. And so I want to protect those, uh, our teens, as they enter that phase of their life. Um, This mom also had asked about the safety of the vaccine, and the studies have shown that it's super safe. It's been on the market for over 10 years. They've seen a dramatic drop in HPV disease and in cervical cancer in countries that have good HPV vaccine programs without any side effects. Um, They've done studies that looked, I know, uh, premature ovarian favor and menopause is something that um, this mom had mentioned, and they've done studies even in the past year that have shown that there's no increased risk of ovarian failure, premature menopause, or any of those side effects that you see on Facebook with HPV um, vaccine. There's also there's all sorts of stuff on Facebook about it, but teens that die from HPV and uh, after the vaccine, and there's been no evidence to show that any of those things 
are related to HPV vaccine administration. We give thousands of doses every year in our office and feel super confident and safe. The one thing that can happen is teens can pass out. And so what we, what I do in my practice is give the HPV vaccine as soon as the teens arrive so that they have about 10 minutes to sit while I'm doing my exam, while I'm talking to them before they get up. Because if they get the HPV vaccine and then they hop up and they start walking out, sometimes we hear the thunk. Well, that was a very good thunk. Thunk. <laughs> where they hit the ground because teens are predisposed to passing out in general. And teens are post predisposed to passing out with vaccines too. Not just HPV. There's nothing specific about HPV. All the vaccines in teens can cause passing out just because their um, sympathetic nervous system is a little revved up, and so they're more likely to pass out. So that's really the only side effect that we ever see, and it hurts. I mean, it's a shot, so mm -hmm. it does hurt, and it causes a little bit of arm pain for a day or two, um, but certainly worth it, um, in my patients' opinions. We have like 98%, and I have many Catholic families that have, uh, we've talked through it, and they've decided that it's the right choice for their family to get the vaccine and feel super confident and safe about it. And if you look at what the um, Catholic bishops say, what the um, Catholic bioethicists say, totally permissible to get HPV vaccine under Catholic doctrine, even though it's spread by sexual transmission because it protects against cancer. And that's the angle that I take with a lot of patients too, is that if we're thinking about being pro-life, well, protecting against cancer in a safe, effective way is as pro-life as anything in my opinion. And as we know, there's risk of sexual assault and other situations where the person who could get the HPV virus, it was not necessarily a consensual situation, or the person was young. Listeners, you know when you were teens that maybe you are not today proud of all of the decisions that you made, and it would be devastating now that we're parents to think that our young people could be in situations where they're exposed to very dangerous life-threatening diseases that they're not ready to make those decisions about. Right. Some parents talk about that and they have to make the right choices. The, their daughter has to make the right choices. And I really, I, I don't think that's fair, a fair burden to put upon them that if they get a cervical cancer, well, they made those choices, so they get it when we have a safe, effective way to prevent it. And like you said, it's not always the, the, the daughter that's making the choice. It's not always, you know, you don't know your partner's history. You don't know who was there they were with before necessarily, and you don't know the choices that they made. And, and you know, we're a forgiving religion, and people make bad decisions. People make bad choices. And you don't have to live with the consequences of those bad choices or die because of the consequences of those previous bad choices if you have made amends and everything like that. What do you say to those who are concerned about administering this vaccination leading to promiscuity among young people? Right. Some people do bring that up from time to time. I think that argument is about as good as saying that wearing seatbelts leads to reckless driving. It just and, and the studies support that too. If you look at, you know, promiscuity rates after HPV vaccination, they're no more promiscuous because they've gotten HPV vaccine um, than they were before. And it's not something that plays into teens' minds. Well, I got HPV vaccine, I can go hog wild. That has not been shown in the studies, nor if you, if, I mean, if we think about it, like you're 
telling them about cervical cancer. It's not something that's going to spur them to go be promiscuous all of a sudden. Um, and so I don't worry about that. And I haven't found that parents really worry about that either because they're not making that, those teens aren't making that decision based on one vaccine that they got. They're much smarter. They're much more savvy than that. They're going to do it if they want to. They're not going to do it if they want to. Vac a vaccine doesn't play a role in adding to that. And the studies show that too. Mm -hmm. The studies show that, that it has no impact on promiscuity. It doesn't make teens feel like they have permission to be promiscuous or act in a more promiscuous manner. Those have both been looked at. So I feel really confident about giving it to teens. And if we're giving it at the young ages, like I recommend at ages 9, 10, 11, that is not even on their radar. And so like this mom said, they're not interested in boys. They're not interested in sex. It's a perfect time to administer it and start that conversation. And oftentimes teens haven't talked about it before with their parents or even know necessarily what a cervix is. So I talk to the teens about cancer and then I have the parents talk to them more about, hey, here's the changes that are going on in your body. Here's what, you know, it kind of leads into that discussion too. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of parents are interested to know just where the general guidelines come from for vaccination. So first, can you explain who decides what vaccinations children should receive at what ages and on what schedule? Yeah, it comes from a bunch of different bodies, actually. The um, American Academy of Pediatrics is a group of pediatricians and others involved in child health, and they make their recommendations. Um, the main recommendations come from both the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, and the American College of um, Immunization Practices. I think that's what it stands for. It's the ACIP. They're the ones that um, put vaccine schedules together. They do the research um, on vaccine safety, vaccine effectiveness, and um, when to give which vaccines. So they kind of make their recommendations, and then they're usually supported and endorsed by other bodies like the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the American Academy of Pediatrics. So that's kind of where the recommendations come from. So it's a couple different bodies that both give the recommendations, and then everybody kind of agrees or endorses them or says, we disagree because whatever. Okay, and this question is definitely putting you on the spot, but I think um, there's definitely a growing population of those who are vaccine hesitant or completely against vaccinating their children. What's your response to the accusation to pediatricians that you're just in it for the money trying to get all of these vaccines happening at your office? Yeah, um, the money is definitely one thing that you see online a lot about it. And I guess if I would look to see the number of doses of vaccines that we give, which is super high, and then where pediatricians fall in line in terms of um, income level amongst doctors. Pediatricians are maybe last in the vast majority in terms of income or second to last after infectious disease doctors, actually, who are probably the poorest compensated amongst physicians. So um, who give the probably who, the who most give, vaccines? Who give lots of vaccines. The people that give vaccines aren't the ones that are raking in the cash. So <laughs> I don't, I mean, I, I, I don't see that borne out in those income levels. It's just not the way it is. Actually, vaccines cost us a ton of money to administer. Mm -hmm. Vaccine products are super expensive. We have to keep them refrigerated. We have to like, we have to have checks inside our refrigerators at all times my office administrator gets a phone call at two in the morning from our refrigerator 
if the temperature isn't staying in the right range mm-hmm. because those vaccines are so expensive. So it costs us a ton of money to administer vaccines. Yeah. It's not a money maker for us whatsoever. Um, and so there's just no science or there's no data um, or logic behind the argument that vaccines make us money. We could, we could do a lot of things differently to make a lot more money. Um, yeah. But it's a public health good that we do it. And you'll see those those specialties like pediatrics and family practice and internal medicine where you're doing a lot of public health good and not get, getting reimbursed the way somebody that does a lot of procedures does. I do think it's good, though, that parents are taking a more proactive role, just doing basic research, trying to learn more, do their due diligence to make sure that the medicine is good and sound. So oh, for sure. if I'm a parent and I'm wanting to learn more about this vaccine, the HPV vaccine, Gardasil, or any other that my child might be receiving, where can I go to find good, solid information that's not going to lead me astray? Right. The two places that I recommend, which are both not not put out by the pharmaceutical industry, they're not put out by vaccine makers, they're not even put out by, by anyone that has any skin in the game in terms of recommending the vaccines or not. Immunize.org is one, which is the American Immunization Action Council Coalition, I think. Immunize.org. And then the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Vaccine Education Center. So if you look either one of those up, if you just Google it, you'll find those two. They're non-biased. They go through the research. They tell you what the vaccine is for, what diseases it protects against, what those diseases cause, what the side effects are, everything really laid out nicely for parents and for the general public. Immunization.org and then the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Vaccine Education Center. And Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is the premier institution in our country for pediatrics. Right, exactly. All right, so let's move on from HPV. Listeners, if you have any follow-up questions, feel free to send those my way. Um, Okay, this next question comes from listener Jennifer. She would like to know, how do you handle young boys with anxiety? So that's a pretty general question. It seems like when you come home, you talk about patients having anxiety and that seeming to be on the rise. So maybe you could speak to anxiety in general and then boys specifically. Yeah, I think you're right. I think anxiety has become, and depression, have both become very big deals in pediatrics, unfortunately. Um, if you look at um, statistics on diagnoses of anxiety and depression, it's way up in the past decade, and I'm not 100% sure why that is. I think there is a lot more stress on families, stress on kids, performance stress. Um, people are busier. Um, there's a lot more on everyone's plate, and I think that probably contributes to it too. And then there's a lot more recognition of things that aren't the way they should be. There's a lot more recognition of anxiety and depression. And I don't think that for most, at least in our practice, there's not an overdiagnosis where everyone just skip labeled and throw it on, throw, thrown on some Prozac. But, but we do recognize that there's um, different degrees of worry. Some are acceptable and normal, and then some are more pathologic. The way that I kind of distinguish in a simplified way between regular worry, which is normal, worrying about tests, worrying about friends, worrying about schoolwork, worrying about loved ones, worrying about death, worrying about weather. Um, Those are normal for most kids that they go through and we just talk through how to work through those worries. 
where I see more diagnosable anxiety where we need to do something about it is um, if they're if it's interfering with their life. Mm-hmm. If it's interfering with their enjoyment of life, their activities, if they're avoiding activities because they're nervous, afraid, worried, if they're avoiding things that they used to like or that they usually like because they've got so much worry and so much anxiety about it, then that's where I think we need to do something. Now, doing something doesn't necessarily mean throwing them on a medication, but coming up with more strategies for them on how to deal with that, sometimes getting a a psychologist or a mental health uh, worker involved as well so that there's an ongoing relationship and we can talk through those things. Mm -hmm. I think um, with anxiety too, I think a lot of parents wonder when you have a specific Uh, situation happen. For example, maybe a loved one passes away and the child is coping with that in ways that the parent is uncomfortable with. So how do you, as a pediatrician, help a family to navigate that knowing what's normal and what's not in a situation like that when you have maybe a family member pass away or a trauma or a situation like that? I think for most worries and specific to that situation, but in general, I think the thing where parents make the first mistake is they try not to talk about it and they try and avoid talking about it because they feel like that's going to add to the worry and to the child. I think that worsens things because they're getting the message that we can't talk about it because there's something wrong with it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm worried because I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why my parents are avoiding talking about grandpa's death or the car accident that we got in. And what I find most helpful is that parents just flip that around and start talking about it and talking about it and talking about it almost to the point where you're talked out about it. And what that does is it gives the child more information. It allows them to ask the questions that they want to share their feelings, share their worries. And they don't always share them directly. Like, Monty's scratching. Um, (laughs) They don't always share, I'm worried that we're going to get in a car accident again. But they might ask questions that show you what they're worried about. Like, why do we wear seatbelts? Why do we have stoplights? You know, things like that that kind of show that they're a little more curious or they're trying to understand why what happened happened. Mm -hmm. And so I think allowing the child to talk about it and checking in with the child, how are you feeling about grandpa and him being in heaven? You know, things like that are okay. You don't have to try and sweep it under the rug and avoid talking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the, the biggest thing that I think parents start off with on the wrong foot is trying to avoid those discussions. Jennifer didn't mention what specific issues she was talking about under the big umbrella of anxiety, but I'd love to hear you speak to, in generalities, what you see as the differences, if there are any, between the ways that young boys and young girls can manifest that they are struggling with anxiety. Do you see any differences at this point if they're prepubescent? I'm trying to think in particular with boys. I see, it seems like a lot that worry about performance. So how they're performing in school, how they're doing in sports or things along those lines. And that leads them to avoid wanting to do those things where it gets to more of a pathologic anxiety where I'm refusing to go to school because I'm, I'm worrying and I'm thinking too much in my head with it. I think for um, girls, it's often related to relationships and they kind of fester and think about those a lot of, of do people like me? Are, am I worried about going to school because I'm going to get made fun of? 
or somebody's going to pick on me. And so I think those are just some generalities, but I think I see both of it enough that I don't really try and hone in on, oh, you're a boy, you have anxiety, here's what you must be worried about. I let the, the child and the parent just kind of bring those things up. Mm-hmm. And it's not always the parent saying he worries a lot, but it's saying he's avoiding school, he doesn't want to play soccer anymore, he doesn't want to spend time with his friends, and then us kind of delving into what's the reason behind that avoidance um, or not enjoying that activity anymore. Mm-hmm. And I imagine you're seeing a lot of instances where you as the pediatrician, you're sitting there with the parent and the child, and it's very obvious to you that the parent is struggling with some anxiety issues. And maybe the child would or would not be struggling with anxiety, but because the parent is struggling so much with anxiety, it has become an issue for the entire family. Mm-hmm. What do you do in those situations where the parent is not your patient, but it's obvious that the parent's anxiety is having an effect on the child? Right. I think I deal with a lot more parental anxiety than I do even with most kids with anxiety Mm -hmm. because parents um, worry a lot and have a lot of ongoing mental health needs themselves, especially with anxiety. I think that's a very common thing where parents will think about and think about and think about different things and have a hard time moving on from that. And so I try, if I can tell that that's contributing to it, I don't think that for a lot of families that child anxiety is brought on by parental anxiety. I just don't see a lot of times. That's reassuring. Yeah. I don't see a lot of times where a a mom that worries a lot passes that on to her kids directly, but I do try to help get them the resources that they need as parents too, because it does have a big impact on the whole family, the whole family's enjoyment and happiness and ability to do all the things that everybody wants to do. So I try and pass along resources. If I can tell that the parents worried, um, or anxious or seeming depressed, then we definitely um, try and get them you know, set up with a psychologist or a psychiatrist or their, their own doctor so that they can get the help that they need. This question comes from Darlin, and she wants to know about bedwetting. She says, bedwetting with older-ish kids, say like almost five years old, how to know if it's a legitimate accident, attention-seeking, because I think both of those happen here, how to react or discipline for it, and when to make a visit to the doctor. Yeah, that's a really common question that we get is about bedwetting. Um, I think that going through and talking with the families about what the normal expectations are for potty training relieves almost all of the discussion about bedwetting. I expect that most um, toddlers will potty train for daytime between ages two and three and a half. Somewhere in there, the vast majority potty train. The rest probably do it by four for sure. Spoiler alert, our kids are always closer to age four. I think they're all around three. I don't think they're all that <laughs> four. Well, but consistently. Yeah, yeah, they usually, because we're not super gung-ho about doing it early because we don't mind diapers as much as we mind asking a toddler 40 times a day if they need to go potty. Um, or dealing with the accidents when you're pregnant right. and have pregnancy nose. Right. So um, most toddlers potty train between two and three and a half uh, for daytime. And then nighttime potty training or isn't really even a thing. They just start staying dry when they start staying dry. It's not anything that they can control. It's not anything that they're typically using um, as a power play unless they're like, you know, standing in the middle of their room, peeing on their bed, like intentionally. If they're just having accidents, then it's 
simply that their brain and their bladder have not made that connection yet, and it just takes time. And what I tell parents is not to waste your time or your stress or frustration waking the kid up in the middle of the night to go potty um, or stressing over it. Just keep them in a pull-up so that they don't. you don't have to change the sheets every night. Keep them in a pull-up until they're consistently dry for a month. Take them out of the pull-up and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. Most kids do totally fine, have very few accidents after that time, but there's really no nothing that I've found that is very helpful in between um, potty training and nighttime um, dryness. So at what age would you say as pediatrician, hmm. a parent should come to you with concerns about bedwetting? If, if parents come in and talk to me when they're four, I tell them just wait. If they come in when they're five, I tell them just wait. If they come in when they're six, I tell them just wait. Usually by seven, the vast majority are potty trained for daytime and nighttime, and so it's not even an issue. Between seven and eight, we'll start to talk about some more strategies if it's around that age and, you know, the child wants to go to camp or they want to have a a sleepover or something along those lines, then we can get into more specifics. But I think even at seven, I'll usually say we can do stuff now or we can just wait another year and the vast majority will still become um, nighttime dry at that time. Okay. I think you addressed all those issues there. If there, I'll say too, if we get to that point, gosh, Monty is just going to town today. If we get to that point where we want to do something, the things that I tell parents to do, one, um, if you can consistently use a bed alarm, then those work well. Um, they have those on Amazon, but those work good for seven and eight-year-olds who have accidents at night. Um, those basically sense the wetness and alarm really loudly so that the child wakes up. Um, having them go to the bathroom twice before bed. So go to the bathroom, go pee, brush your teeth, go pee again. Sometimes that will help to just get the bladder totally empty. Um, There's sometimes where we use medicines too. There's some really effective medicines that work great without side effects um, that work for dryness. And I will use those like if we're at the point where they want to start doing sleepovers and they're really lacking the confidence to go on a sleepover or go to camp because they're worried about having that accident then I will um, use those medications as a bridge to their brain and their bladder making that connection on their own. So those are effective too, and, and I use those and find that they work quite well for kids. I like this question. This is a pretty general question for parents. This is from listener Brenda. How can parents tell what warrants a trip to the doctor besides the obvious things and what doesn't? Right, so why should when should you come to the doctor? That is, I mean, there's so many different um, avenues that would lead me to wanting to see a child that it's it's hard to say in general terms. I think if we're talking about young babies, then um, any concerns, I think, warrant at least a phone call. That doesn't mean you're going to have to come in. You can talk to the nurse and maybe talk through things because they have a lot of experience too. If we're having trouble breathing, um, staying awake when we should be awake, or um, feeding for babies. So breathing, feeding, and being vigorous and active, those are the things where I think it's worth a trip to the doctor. If you have a fever and you're a young baby, then you definitely need to be seen. Um, but I think What that, is a fever? I think this is important because some yeah. people think anything over 98.6. Yeah, um, technically a fever is 100.4 or greater. And so that's kind of our cutoff in the office um, in terms of you have a fever. Now, what does that mean? It varies by age what you need to do about that. 
Young babies need to be seen if they have a fever. Sometimes that will require a trip to the emergency department even, um, and a lumbar puncture or um, some IV antibiotics and things along those lines. Older babies, infants, toddlers, and so on, a fever is just a symptom that something is going on. And I tell parents, rather than to get hung up on the number, to treat the fever appropriately with Tylenol or ibuprofen, depending on their age and everything, and then see how they're looking. If they're breathing easily, if they're feeding well, if they're vigorous and mostly happy and active, then you can let the fever ride. If you treat the fever and they're breathing, you know, having trouble breathing, that's um, concerning. If they're not feeding, if we're worried about dehydration, there's so many different things that play into it that it's tough to give blanket statements. But I think the, the bare bones is if we're feeding well, if we're vigorous and we're breathing okay, then those are things where we can pause and think about it, watch, trend it out, and see how things are going. So speaking in generalities, now that we're entering cold and flu season, mm -hmm. a lot of parents are in that gray area of, oh, my kid has a temperature, so I'm going to keep him out of school, but maybe I want to give it a day or two or maybe even three before I take him in to go see the doctor. So would you say that those three things are good general parameters for them to keep in mind before they schedule a visit? Yeah, I mean, I think that it depends, again, on their age. And if they're younger, the younger they are, the more concerned we get about a fever because they haven't got all their immunizations, their immune system isn't as strong and all of those sort of things. So that certainly plays a role, too. But I think in general terms, if you um, have the new onset of cold symptoms, then it's fine to watch and wait um, and and see how it goes. Mm -hmm. And always feel free to call the office. Oh, yeah. Yeah. and. The triage nurses are trained to yeah. help you make those decisions, too. For, for sure. Our website even has a symptom checker where it walks you through the different symptoms that kids can have and does it by age, so you know what to do in those cases, too. Do you want to share the website for your practice so people can find that uh, symptom checker? LincolnPedsGroup.com. Peds is P-E-D-S. But I'm sure, you know, if you have a pediatrician, almost every pediatrician's website has a, a symptom checker, and they all actually basically work off the same database. So any pediatrician's website will work. Okay. All right. Next question from Jessica. Can parents cause sensitivities to various foods by keeping them out of kids' diets, such as gluten, eggs, dairy, etc.? This is an important question. It seems yeah. like food allergies and intolerances are becoming such a big deal. Right. So she's asking if I if we avoid giving the child a certain food um, or introducing that food, do we run the risk of giving them an allergy or sensitivity or something like that? And there are a couple instances where I think it is important to introduce foods early um, and to make sure that we do them. The two that have been studied and shown to make a difference are eggs and peanuts. In the past, they used to recommend waiting on peanuts until age one or two, and now we have all these peanut-free tables at school and peanut-free classrooms and epinephrine pens and everything like that. And we think it's because in the States we have been keeping peanuts away from kids during a critical window when they need to be exposed to it so that they recognize it as food that's safe, that's a normal antigen, and so our body doesn't become sensitive or allergic to peanuts. And so withholding peanuts um, can increase the risk of peanut allergy. So we recommend that kids start being introduced to, to peanuts between um, 4 and 12 months. And the easiest ways to do that uh, are to put some into puree, like in you know your baby food 
fruit puree, you can add peanut butter to it and just mix it up or put some peanut butter on little pieces of toast as they get older and cut it up. But exposing them on a regular basis to peanuts helps protect against peanut allergies. They found this because in Israel, they give these little bomba um, crackers to babies starting at a really young age, like four or five months. And they have no peanut allergy, essentially, in Israel. And we realized, well, they're doing something, which is exposing their, their infants to peanuts at a really young age. And that's why we're not seeing peanut allergy like we do in the States. So introducing peanuts early is good and important. And introducing eggs early also helps protect against allergies. So between the same window, 4 to 12 months, introduce eggs on a consistent basis. You can do quick cook eggs like scrambled eggs or a fried egg or something like that, cut up into little pieces, and baked eggs as well. So baked eggs and things like cookies and cake and whatever else. What about a mother who is breastfeeding? Um, should she have any concerns about introducing food sensitivities or allergies to her child through her diet? Nope. I think that um, mothers should eat a normal diet too. If they eat peanut butter on a regular basis, they should keep eating it. If they eat eggs and milk and all those things, that for breastfed babies, it's important that they're exposed to those through breast milk and then started on solid foods at the normal ages too. So if a baby starts to show symptoms of having a food allergy or intolerance, at what age do those typically manifest yeah, themselves? It, it can usually vary, but usually we see food allergies in the first two to three years of life. A lot of times if babies have really bad eczema, we'll kind of start to hunt for food allergies because those can be linked together. But then typically we see food allergies in the first um, two to three years of life. The other one that she asked about that we didn't talk about was gluten. Mm -hmm. Gluten isn't one, isn't an, uh, like if you're thinking about celiac disease, it's not the same allergic pathway as um, peanut allergy or egg allergy. But the same recommendation holds that babies should be exposed to gluten at a normal age as well. And um, that is at least doesn't cause celiac to strike at an earlier age, but um, is safe to do. There's no reason to withhold those foods from a baby um, out of concern if, if somebody else in the family has celiac or just to protect them from celiac in general. Mm -hmm. um, so it's good to introduce gluten uh, at a normal stage as well. So what would be a normal stage for gluten to be introduced? When it, just with normal food introduction, so between 4 and 12 months of life. Okay. Same as everything else. So not trying to find specific foods that are gluten-free. No, you don't need to um, try and avoid gluten for any um, of those kids. Uh, okay, I love this question from listener Molly, who is a mother of twins. Molly wants to know, speaking about Philip, does he judge people who use formula? With my twins, I tried but wasn't successful, and I always feel like I should have kept it up. My pediatrician said that my babies need a sane mother, and I followed her advice, but I always feel a little guilty. I definitely agree with Molly's pediatrician that there shouldn't be any shame or guilt about using formula. Uh, I talk to a lot of parents about this. This is a big discussion that we have and a big struggle for a lot of families is how to feed their baby and how to feed their baby the way that they were hoping to and what their expectations were. And I tell a mom at least every couple of months and sometimes more often that it doesn't seem like breastfeeding is in her best interest or in the baby's best interest. And just in the past week or two, I know I've had at least one mom where I said, it doesn't seem like breastfeeding is really working for you. It doesn't seem like it's giving you 
the peace of mind, the confidence that you need as a parent, the rest that you need. And so I have recommended on numerous occasions previously that, that moms stop breastfeeding or turn to formula for more supplementation um, for their baby to get the sanity that they need. And so I don't ever judge parents for what they feed their children. In fact, if they're worried about it, I tell them, you know, when Sammy here goes to kindergarten, they're not going to separate them out by formula <laughs> fed and breastfed, you know, kindergartners or anything like that. They'll still play on the same soccer team. Um, there's certainly benefits of, for breastfeeding, but there's equal or greater benefits to having a peaceful household. And for some moms, breastfeeding adds so much stress, worry, frustration, heartache, that it's definitely not in mom or baby's best interest. And like Molly said in this question, a sane mother is an important part of a healthy family. And so if she is giving her all and it's too much, it's too much for the family, um, then we need to have that conversation. And it will sometimes take a few discussions to get to the point where they're okay with that or they decide to do part formula, part breast milk or pumping only. There's so many different shades of breastfeeding and there's so many different ways of being successful with breastfeeding. Successful breastfeeding doesn't mean breastfeeding for 12, 18 months exclusively um, for, for every parent. It might mean breastfeeding when you're in the hospital or breastfeeding um, just when baby's first born for the colostrum or breastfeeding for a month or breastfeeding and formula feeding or pumping and nursing or not breastfeeding at all. And, and I really, I don't judge parents um, regardless of the choice that they make. I just try and support them in that decision, give them the information that they need to make the right decision and feel confident about that decision. And I don't find that after we've discussed it, after we've talked it through, that a lot of parents feel too much guilt about the decision to stop breastfeeding or to continue breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. I think our personal experience has definitely colored your view on this. I think um, it's important for you to share dad's perspective on this. So what was it like for you when we had our first child and I was struggling so much? I had a very difficult delivery. I had some really um, bad injuries that I was recovering from as a result. And that complicated my ability to breastfeed. And I only breastfed for, I think, six weeks with our firstborn before I decided it wasn't working out. And you were a big part of me at that point. You were still in medical school for me deciding that it was no longer a good fit. I think it's important to, can you talk about what it was like to be the husband and dad mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. situation? Oftentimes it's hard for dads because they're kind of on the sidelines and feel like they don't have anything to do to help in the, that situation because they obviously can't breastfeed. Um, and you're doing everything you can to support mom, but at the end of the day, it's really on mom to breastfeed and to have the energy and nutrition and to do all of that as you're recovering at the same time from delivery, from um, a surgery or from a, just a regular vaginal delivery too, that that's really hard on moms. Um, and so as a dad, it's, it's difficult because you want to be there to support, but there isn't much you can do other than wrapping the baby up, swaddling them, sticking your pinky finger in their mouth, and giving mom a little bit of a break. So it often feels very um, defeating from the dad's perspective if if it's not working out because I, you don't feel like you have much to offer um, in terms of helping. So then I think it's just being supportive, 
continuing the conversation, helping mom realize what she can do, what she's doing well, why things are going well, even if we're struggling, what, what the good is, and then to be supportive in giving mom breaks and getting um, some time into rest because well-rested, well-hydrated, well-nourished mom is more likely to be successful with breastfeeding and to have a more positive outlook too. So those are things, even though we can't nurse, that, that a dad can do to help. Mm-hmm. And dad can be such a huge role in feeding in general, regardless of how the family decides to make nutrition look in that first year of life or beyond, if uh, breastfeeding continues to be part of the family's decision beyond that one-year mark. But I know I struggled first child, it lasted six weeks, and then with each child I was able to be successful with nursing for longer. But I think it was for multiple reasons, and I stopped with each one for different reasons. But um, I think I am most successful... I was most successful with Dorothy, our youngest, because I finally was a good enough advocate for myself where I was able to realize what my limitations were and find a way to make, as you said, breastfeeding be successful the way I wanted it to be for our entire family. Because at that point, we had four children, and I had to figure out how I was going to make breastfeeding work within our entire family's schedule. Because it wasn't just me and this newborn baby, it was me and everything else that went into family life at that point. And I think right. since you're a pediatrician, you're also keeping in mind that your patients, if this, excuse Monty, if this family has multiple children, you have multiple patients right. in front of you coming in. So it's much easier for you to see the bigger picture of mm-hmm. this decision about breastfeeding involves more than just this one child and it's a child it's a decision that affects everyone oh for sure yeah it's it's a family decision and it works for a lot of people but it doesn't work for everybody and that's okay and it's something that you can can it's not a one-time decision either I'm going to breastfeed for 12 months I'm going to breastfeed for six months it's something that's an ongoing conversation of is this working for our family is this what's best for baby is this what's best for mom is this what's best for the other children? Was this what's best for the family? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a conversation to continue having. I think there's um, so much of the science and awareness about the benefits of breastfeeding, and it's pushed so hard and heavily, especially in the hospital setting. Right after you give birth, the hormones are going crazy. You're told in some hospitals you have to have the baby sleep in the room with you, and you're expected to do all these different things. And there's so much pressure there that I imagine moms feel that that attitude always translates over to their pediatrician as well as part of the health baby community. And while I would say, yes, obviously you are a proponent of breastfeeding and think that it's wonderful, that you also see that it's not always that easy of a decision for families. Right, for sure. Yeah, I think I try and help parents advocate for themselves. And like you said, from our experience and from all the patients in my practice's experiences, that oftentimes it works great. In some cases, it's just not right for mom, not right for baby, not right for the family. And so um, we just change our expectation of what successful breastfeeding looks like. And that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate you speaking to that. That was the last question that I had from our listeners. Did you have any closing thoughts 
or resources or things that you want parents to leave inspired with as mm. a pediatrician? I think the biggest thing that I try and talk to parents about and really help them with is feeling like they have the confidence to make choices for their family that are in everyone's best interest and using the pediatrician more as a uh, support. Um, I think of it like Yoda and Luke Skywalker. Like I'm, I have, I'm Yoda. I have more knowledge. I've been, I've seen more families. I haven't necessarily been around longer than you, but I've seen a lot of families but you're the hero for your family. You're the Luke Skywalker. The story's really about you, and I'm just there to help you along in the journey and answer questions when they come up, give my advice and my experience. But most of it comes from the parents and from the family, and so that's that's kind of what I try and give my patients is that confidence to make choices for their family that um, that they can be happy with and that they can be confident about that it was the right choice, and um, I'm here to help and help in those situations where more big things are going on. But most of it's not what I, I mean, I don't make most of the family decisions for a family by any stretch of the imagination. And so giving parents that um, boost up in their own parental in intuition is really what I like to do best. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm sure the listeners really appreciate just hearing the reassurance that you were able to provide them with today. And if listeners would like to find you online, you have a website. It is drphilboucher.com. Doctor is D-R. And he also has a Facebook page where you can find him. That's facebook.com slash drphilboucher. And I'll post those links in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Thanks, Philip. You're welcome. So uh, before I close out the show, I have two emails that I wanted to quickly share with all of you. The first one is from Gracie. She says, Catherine, I am trying to get through listening to your latest episode. It's a little rough with the little ones. You know how that goes. I love your podcast. I wanted to tell you that day five babies are the best. Our third was a day five baby, and all the doctors looked at my charts and concluded that God really wanted him to be here. I was not on any medication. It just happened, LOL. I know day five babies are the best because he is such a light in our lives, this little shining beacon of energy. I love your message, and I just felt like saying you are not alone, and God does have an amazing plan. Always, Gracie. Gracie, I loved your message. Thank you so much for the solidarity as a day five baby mama. Um, I, I think you always think that your story is so unique and you're the only one, but you and the next email showed me that that is definitely not the case because um, I also got this email from Angie. She says, Catherine, I just listened to your podcast. So excited to see you back. And I have a similar story. We had two boys and wanted to grow our family. We tried to get pregnant for almost a year, but I always loved the idea of adopting. So we started the adoption process for South Korea. We were getting ready to mail our packet with the first big check to our adoption agency when I found out I was pregnant with our daughter, who is now almost 16. We laugh sometimes at how we thought at that time we weren't going to be able to have any more biological children. We ended up having three more for a total of six kids, three boys and three girls. We are so blessed and I'm excited to say that one of my girls is determined to adopt. I will be praying for you as you deal with your morning sickness. God bless, Angie. 
So <laughs> Gracie and Angie, uh, two of the emails that I got after I released that last podcast just remind me that we, we think that we're the only ones going through something. And then as soon as I put my story out there, I had two listeners who happened to have a day five baby and were also adopting from South Korea and found out that they were pregnant. So thank you to Gracie and Angie for taking the time to reach out. I just love getting feedback from all of you. I received a bunch of emails and I looked at our stats in Holy Toledo. We have listeners in 48 states in 27 countries as of the last time I peeked at that last week. So thank you for continuing to share the show with all of your friends. Keep, please keep doing so. And if you haven't already, please leave a rating or a review on iTunes to help get the show in front of as many listeners as possible. If you'd like to uh, find any of the links or resources that we talked about in today's show, you can find those on my website, katherineboucher.com. Look for episode 28, Q&A with Dr. Philip Boucher. And like I said, you can find him online at drdrphilboucher.com or his Facebook page, facebook.com slash drphilboucher. Please keep sharing your book recommendations, your TV shows that you're watching lately. By the way, our family just started watching Little House on the Prairie. And we are loving it. If you haven't seen that show, please give it a try. I want to hear what you think about it. Um, you can always send me your feedback at podcast at katherineboucher.com or you can find me on Facebook or Instagram. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Until next time, don't be afraid to begin again and share what you heard while you were folding. <laughs> <laughs>